Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. It was definitely a rough patch for us. But through the therapy, she suggested that I have to take my feelings towards Matthew and set them aside so you can cope because you want to be there. You love your husband. You want to be in this relationship and you have a son. So I had to learn how to basically ignore it. I had to ignore all the chaos that for me he was bringing. I think Tom dealt with it much better than I did or possibly hit it better than I did. Welcome to All the Wiser, a podcast about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. I'm Kimmy Culp. This is part two of a two-part series with devoted parents, Ken Cole and Tom Boulay, whose son, Matthew, nearly stabbed them to death in 2018. If you haven't listened to part one with Tom, released two weeks ago, it would be good to start there. But I promise you won't be lost if you listen to this one first. Today, we are speaking with Ken, Tom's husband, who shares his experience of the events leading up to the night of the stabbing. And since we are all so much more than the worst day of our lives, I want to set the stage for Ken's story and take you back, back to the 1980s. The year was 1985. Ronald Reagan was sworn in for his second term as President of the United States. Michael Jordan was named Rookie of the Year, and we all watched sitcoms like The Cosby Show and Family Ties. There were virtually no gay characters on TV, and the few that existed were given stereotypical storylines, like the character Stephen on Dynasty, whose bisexuality was depicted as a moral failing and somehow more of a problem than his awful, wicked, scheming family. Meanwhile, Ken Cole and his wife were in their late 20s. They were living in Riverside, California with a six-month-old baby and a second child on the way. Also in 1985, the AIDS crisis was in full swing. President Ronald Reagan mentioned the word AIDS for the first time as cases were skyrocketing, up 89% from the year before. And I, I thought, I better go get a test because I have slept with a couple of people. And I did get tested and went back two weeks later and I was positive. And my wife was pregnant with our second child. Fortunately, they are all negative, which is a blessing. It was hard to realize when you're that young, okay, I'm gonna die early. Yeah, That is what my life is gonna be. So I went to a lot of um, support groups and I went to one particular woman who is quite famous now and it changed my life because it, it said, you are not this disease. How do you wanna look at yourself right now while you're alive? And I'm like, oh gosh. I have the power to change my thoughts about how to deal with this. And so I did. I became spiritual and learned how to meditate and changed the way I I felt about it. That helped considerably, considerably that I was able to do that because everybody was dying. I was living obviously with my wife, so I wasn't out gay man. She and I divorced when we were 29 years old and both of our kids are deaf, um, born that way. So that was a challenge also to get over, but we did. So thinking about that time, 
and how people must have experienced the diagnosis because the prognosis was not good. And certainly how society had a, a deep lack of understanding and there was so much fear right around it. When I think about you, young in your 20s, having a deaf child, getting this diagnosis, and also being, for lack of a better word, in the closet, you know, it doesn't surprise me that knowing you now that you found early on ways to cope and to heal and to control your thoughts. But I'm curious because when I learned that both your kids were deaf, was it a genetic disorder? I've never heard of two siblings. The doctors told us it was genetic. It was one of us has the recessive gene, and it could be that both of us have the recessive gene. Almost all of our grandparents were alive when they were born, and they knew of no deafness anywhere in the family. So it was somewhere, and it popped up twice. So here we were, 23 years old, with two deaf young children. That was quite a bit to handle, but we handled it. Well, first of all, your wife, what was her reaction to your diagnosis of HIV AIDS? Well, I had told her before we got married that I was bisexual, and I was. I was young and naive, and I loved her very much, still do. We're still friends. She was obviously shocked, and she wasn't angry at me. I think her first thought was afraid that, you know, I was going to die especially after they got checked and they were negative. Yeah, but I imagine the transparency and honesty on the front end of your sexuality and who you were paved the way for a moment that was probably easier than her digesting a number of truths at once. I I would absolutely say that's correct. I really thought that, okay, because I enjoyed being with women and men, I thought that getting married that part of being with men would go away. And it clearly just doesn't go away. It's just a part of who you are. And what I came to realize is that I was gay. And I thought, well, I want to live an open life before I die. That's what I want in my life. And I changed my career and took a much easier job, a pay cut, but an easier job to lower the stress, to help me stay alive as long as possible. You know, I imagine facing your mortality, as you just said, sort of propels you to live in your truth, right? To I guess it's cliche, though, the carpe diem, you know that every day matters, right? So you get intentional and clear in a way that I think people don't when they feel immortal. So that's interesting that this prognosis, which ultimately was not true, I imagine propelled you into stepping into your truth and your sexuality and creating the life that you authentically wanted earlier than it would have. It most certainly did. And I, even when I decided to come out, my family were not really that surprised, to be quite frank. Some of my brothers didn't want to be around me because of the HIV, but they would reluctantly. As fate would have it, Ken met Tom only two months after his divorce. The sparks were immediate. Ken was honest with Tom about being HIV positive and warned him they may only have six months together. But Tom didn't care. We fell in love. We fell in love. He's like, I'll take six months if that's all it is. So we started our relationship and... Not but nine months later, he moved to Los Angeles. Well, I've met him. He's very lovable, so I get falling in love. He he is indeed. (laughs) He is indeed. So you fall in love with Tom, and at what point do you decide that the two of you would like to have a child of your own? That wasn't until 1995. And we started talking about it. A part of that also was, you may be a single parent. You know, I may not be here. I had already gone through two different episodes where I was dying and did go into AIDS. You know, I said, I would like to have another child. So we hired a lawyer and he found another birth mother who was willing to 
let two gay men adopt. Again, a time and place where I imagine the acceptance, the awareness is not close to what it is today. It was very low, to say say the least. And I remember I told the lawyer that I was HIV positive, and he stopped the meeting completely and said, I think you should probably leave, because now I'm not going to be able to find anybody, because I have to disclose it. The adoption goes through, and Ken and Tom are preparing for a new baby. They flew the birth mother to Los Angeles and rented her an apartment as they waited for their soon-to-be son's delivery. As Tom mentioned in his episode, there were major complications with the delivery. A nurse accidentally punctured a hole in baby Matthew's lung during suctioning. He turned purple and spent nine days in the NICU. And then another nurse passed out while holding Matthew and dropped him five feet onto his head. It was a traumatic entry into the world. You really can't help but think the problems had to have had some effect. I, I, you know, obviously don't know, but my strong instinct and inclination would be how could it not? Correct. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. So Matthew was born. We brought him home from the NICU and... Tom would ask when he started crawling, is it normal that he's crawling into his bedroom in the dark and just sitting there and he doesn't play with any toys? I'm like, no, that's not normal at all. Tom didn't have a reference point, but I did when my kids were younger. And it was problems from the get-go. It was problems. I remember when he was two, we would go on a walk and he would run down the street and go on people's doors and start banging them and screaming and yelling. I'm like, oh my Lord, what, what is wrong with him? I didn't know how to control him. It was, it was difficult to say the least. So I got to the place where I didn't want to take him out because I was embarrassed. I didn't know how to handle him. And Tom was the opposite, which was actually good balance because he just wanted to get out of the house with him. So we went to UCLA to the partial hospitalization early detection to help with the problems and give us, with a child like this, better parenting skills. And that that helped a lot, just to get through the market, just so I could manage it. Yeah, well, I know you guys are driving all over the city and going to specialists, going to therapists, changing schools. But, you know, I was interested especially because you had had the experience of being a father to two deaf children. Did you find compassion and empathy or did you find judgment? I would say both. You know, two white gay men with a half black child kind of took people by surprise, to say the least. And um, Yeah, there's already some judgment. Yeah, there's already judgment. Some people, yeah. They're just by the visual. And, you know, we didn't really have any help. I didn't have any family that lived close. My mother was there in the beginning, but it was hard to find help, you know, so we could just leave and go on a vacation, you know, and have a break. And and I was at that point staying home a lot and not working so I could be a house husband. And I imagine it creates the energy in the home, the stress in all aspects, I imagine, in your relationship with Tom, that sounds like a lot to live with. It, it was a lot. It was really difficult. Matthew was a very difficult child to raise. He was. What were some of the other, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about him as a young boy, but as he's getting older, what are you witnessing in his behavior? Well, he would be aggressive. You know, we would try sports like soccer so team sports and then if anybody said anything he would hit him he was aggressive we would have to stay out of a game because something happened it was a a constant battle he he was smart so he he was learning when he was much younger like three we were in speech therapy because he he didn't speak till late we were working with 
therapist to try to find, you know, psychiatrist to find the right medication that would work so he would calm down. And quite frankly, I don't even think they knew. There wasn't really a definitive diagnosis, correct? He was a bit of a puzzle. He was a bit of a puzzle. And one um, doctor diagnosed him on the autistic spectrum. Another one said, no, he's not. He has anger management issues. But I literally had one doctor that he went to for a while. I called her because we were having such problems and he was escalating and things were, were difficult. And she said, remind me what he's on. And I told her and she's like, well, what do you think we should do? I said, I- I'm not a doctor. I'm asking you that question. <laughs> um, um, I'm here I, for answers. We, we fired her <laughs> and found somebody else. But it was a constant battle. It was a constant battle trying to keep him in a, a calm state, not medicated state, like over-medicated just so he wouldn't erupt. Did you have windows of quote-unquote normalcy? Because I imagine you're looking around at the world and other kids are playing soccer and they have friendships and they're riding their bikes and joy and other kids. And as a parent, you're just hoping that any of that, you know, even for a day or a week or a month. So were there periods of feeling like he's getting better or was it just consistent? For the most part, it was consistent. There were some good times. There were some good times when he wasn't so angry. Sometimes it's hard for me to think about what those are because the hard times were so hard and challenging physically, mentally, all of it. I know there there were happy times, but he never had friends. He exercised a lot. He would ride his bike, but he never had friends. We tried and nothing worked. He was in special needs school and we were kicked out of there. Tom said, you can kick us out of here. Isn't that the point? <laughs> right. right. We're here because we really need a lot of help. So he went to another special needs school that was a lockdown with barbed wire fence all around it. And it was, it was pretty awful. Yeah. It was just awful. Every time I went there, it was just, how did we end up here? How did this happen? And he kept begging us, get me out of here. Please get me out of here. And all along, every day in school, he would call me as well as Tom because he was in trouble. He was in the padded cell. I call it a cell. It was the padded room is better to say. So it, it was not, he went to school and then you had a break. There was, felt it felt like there was never a break. Yeah. And then I imagine guilt sets in. Yes. Yeah. Um, we went to the regional center because they provide help and monies to get that help. And they were really, really busy. And they had this older intake person. And I was trying to control Matthew on my lap. And she looked at me and said, well, clearly the problem is with you. I'm like, excuse me? I want to punch her in the face right now. (laughs) The problem is not me. I know that it wasn't me. But I, I know people were thinking that. For the most part, I didn't care. Yeah. It's like, say whatever you want. I, I know that I'm doing a good job and the best I can do. Well, with beyond you guys were doing. I mean, you have a child whose brain health, whose mental health is incredibly sick, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. And you were no stone unturned to get him the help he needed. Basically. Yeah. We did everything. Tom would literally show up at the school with a three ring binder full of mostly empty pages with tabs that he would pull out something and present them with so we could get more help. But you know, they were very intimidated because sometimes he can be intimidating. Um, (laughs) Tom or Matthew? Tom. (laughs) Both. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that's true. And, um, they were would look at this big binder thinking it's full of all this information of Matthew, but it was really only where the tabs were that Tom was pulling out. But it helped us get the the help we needed. Yeah. At one point at the school, they had to bring in mental health. And so the mental health department came in and, and they ranged the kids. It was if you were under 40 points, they would suggest housing for your child. 
Matthew was at 25, wow. 24 or 25. And she also said, but his home life is so much better than at school. I don't see problems at home. So we're not suggesting he go into housing. And are your coping mechanisms the same ones who got you through the diagnosis in 1985? Are you turning to spirituality and meditation? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was. Because I had to find a way, some way, to deal with all this stress. And to have peace. Yeah. In 2011, Ken's health took a turn for the worse. His lungs were covered in blood clots, and he had a major pulmonary embolism. Plus, because of the HIV, his system was down, and it almost killed him. And my daughter, actually, she and her boyfriend upped the date of their marriage a year because they thought I was going to die. And Matthew's answer to me was, why don't you just die? And that was a turning point. I, I left for a month, only a month, but I knew I had to get out. I had to get out of the house. We were all fighting. It was just, it was not good. The month away was really good, <laughs> to say the least. And Tom and I would spend hours texting each other. And we were also happy we were separated at that moment. It was the right thing to do. Yeah, I get that. Just to take care of yourself. Right. And, yeah. Medically and physically depleted and, you know, not well. And emotionally, I would imagine, exhausted. Yeah. And you give yourself this month of rest, really, from the energy in the house. You know, I know you were in a lot of therapy at that time. So yes. how was it impacting your relationship with Tom and, you know, your kids? What What are the ramifications? It, it, it was definitely a rough patch for us. But through the therapy, she suggested that I have to take my feelings towards Matthew and set them aside so you can cope because you want to be there. You love your husband. You want to be in this relationship and you have a son. So I had to learn how to basically ignore it. I had to ignore all the chaos that for me he was bringing. I think Tom dealt with it much better than I did or possibly hit it better than well, just I did. differently. Yeah. Yeah, correct. So that worked. That helped me get through it. And I slowly got better. My health got stronger, which is great. And the wedding was beautiful. Nicole had come to me and asked me, would you mind if both of you walked me down the aisle? Because Tom is my father too. You know, he helped raise us. Um, I was just blown away and so happy. So that beautiful. It, it was just beautiful. Nicole and her husband lived a couple hours outside of L.A., and Matthew would take the train to visit them. Ken says he had a really good relationship with her. His son Tyler, however, had no relationship with Matthew, partly because Tyler was dealing with his own struggles but also because Matthew was just a hard person to be around. He wasn't happy, and he kept getting angrier and angrier as he got older. A lot of the time he spent gaming, but he kept doing his homework, finished junior high, and then high school at a private Catholic school. And he did, he did well. You know, he did do well. I was proud of him for that. I was very proud. I was never called in. We were called into junior high, but not to high school. When we come back, Matthew is off to college and the house is quiet for the first time in 21 years. Stay with us. All the Wiser is a one-for-one one podcast. For every story you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest's favorite charity. Today's episode supports AIDS Project LA. APLA Health is one of the largest nonprofit HIV organizations in our country. Their tireless work helping people with HIV has saved countless lives. You can find out more about them on their website at aplahealth.org.
So he gets on this path, as you said, you know, that he's smart, right? So he does well academically, goes to college. What was that like, I guess, having him out of the house? I imagine it's a bit of a big exhale. Oh, God, I can't even tell you. Our house was quiet for the first time in 21 years because he was always there. He didn't go on anywhere with friends because he didn't have any friends. So it was a constant on. The only time it wasn't is when he was at school. It was joyous. It it really was. To reconnect with Tom, to live in a peaceful home. Right. And he went to school where Tom's brother and sister-in-law and niece live. So that was helpful because they could help him out. He even lived with them a summer when he joined the young Republicans just to spite us. What he didn't realize is it didn't spite us at all. We were actually happy that he had joined a group. That he was a part of something. He was part of something that was joyous. And also because he wasn't there to be quite frank. So at the end of it, it didn't work out well. Somebody said something bad to him and that was that. What year was he in college in 2018? He had finished his junior year. Okay. And he was home for the summer. And he had gotten his job back. Um, they didn't had the year before, which was at the theaters. He only had one big blow up there. And he called us while we were at the bowl. And Tom had to leave and go talk with him to calm him down because he was about to lose his mind. And when we got home from that, he had destroyed our Bose sound wave machine and he had stabbed the cabinets and we were both asked him, okay, I know you were upset, but why are you hurting our stuff? Yeah. That doesn't make a sense. So he apologized and he literally had taken everything he had ever won, the black belts, the everything and put it on her table and said, I don't deserve these things. And (laughs) It's like, it was, it was very sad. He was, he was sad about what he had done. He was very remorseful because he clearly had a, a manic moment, I guess one could say. Yeah. And, you know, we said, no, you, you deserve these medals and all of this. You won these. You did the work. Well, yeah. Seeing him in that much pain and that. He's not worth, you know, that he's worthless. Yeah, that's exactly right. That 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 was the feeling, is that he was he was worthless. So Matthew comes home his junior year in college. And one night in July, he came into our bedroom and it was one o'clock in the morning. I slept through this episode, but he had the phone underneath his face and he wakes Tom up and he said, why didn't you check my hearing? Why? And just crazy. Like Tom, you know, said, get out of the room, get out of the room and don't ever come back in here again ever come into our room. And if you do it again, we're going to have to think of a different place for you to live. I think it was a week later, could have been two weeks later. He comes into the room again, doing the same thing. And I slept through that episode too. I I take a Xanax to sleep every night Mm -hmm. and we had had a martini. (laughs) So that gets the job done. That gets the job done. So, you know, I was sound asleep. For some reason, I I woke up. I woke up, put my shorts on, and I walked back there, and he's got Tom around his arm, his neck around his arm, and has a knife is up in the air. I went immediately to grab the knife. Now, mind you, I'd just woken up, and I couldn't get it, and he cut in between my finger, and he dropped Tom, and then he went after me. 
and started stabbing my arm. I was trying to protect my face. And I yelled to Tom, he's trying to kill us. He's trying to kill us. And at that moment, Tom just woke up. He was like, oh. And Matthew came in front of me and shoved the knife in my lung. And so at this point, I couldn't breathe and I was bleeding so much. Are you mind out of body or? Yeah, a little bit. I I didn't realize he had stabbed me all those times in my arm. I knew he was doing something, but I think it's it's. You're in shock. I I'm in in utter shock. You know, when he hit me in the chest, I started trying to get down the hall to find my phone, and he chases me down the hall. I couldn't find my phone, and I was bleeding so bad and couldn't breathe because my lung had been punctured, and so I fell down on the floor. And I was trying to act like I was dead. And Matthew's on the phone talking to somebody. And he said, Aidzilla is bleeding out. And I just thought, oh my God, what is happening? How did this happen? Um, so he left me. And I thought, okay, I can see the helicopters light. I could hear the police. I thought, get up, Ken, just get up, get up, get up, get up and open that front door. You can't help Tom anymore. There's no possible way. You have to open that front door and let the cops in. I don't know how I got up. I really have no clue, but I got up and I opened that door. I opened the door and here's what appeared to be like 20 police. There's two ambulances I didn't know there was a film crew across the street. One of the cops said, run across the street. And the last thing I remember is, what? Because how on earth am I going to run yeah. anywhere? So I wake up and I'm at the hospital. And I said, where am I? Because I don't remember the ambulance or anything. And they said, you're at UCLA. And I said, where's Tom and how is he? And he said, he's in emergency surgery and they're trying to save his life. And I'm like, oh my Lord. It was just, um, how did this happen? Yeah. Why did it happen? It was another week before they would be able to see each other. Tom was in the ICU and Ken wasn't allowed to go on his floor. Tom's colon was severed. He didn't eat for 12 days and lost a ton of blood. Ken had a massive black eye that dislodged his tear duct and impacted his vision. He had to have four surgeries, three on his arm and one on his hand. His arm was locked on his chest, and it was a big surgery to get it moving again. Only, the doctor was negligent, and Ken got a staph infection. Sadly, he had to have most of his right bicep removed. It was nine long days before Tom and Ken could see each other, and the moment they were reunited couldn't have been sweeter. I had gone out in the hall to walk. So I'm pulling my IV on wheels and Tom came up at the same time and he was in a bed. His boss was actually there and we see each other and we're both crying and it was just so emotional. There's a picture of both of us in wheelchairs outside at UCLA, me with my big black eye and all these tubes and everything coming out of Tom. And it, it was just joyous that, that he had lived and we both lived through this. It, it was miraculous. Yeah. Hearing that the specifics that both of you lived, you know, Tom, when we first spoke said or explained something to me and it's true for you as well. And I really thought about it deeply the amount of, for lack of a better word, hats that you have to wear, that you are a victim of a violent crime. Yes. You're physically, emotionally you know, wounded with PTSD. You're also a caretaker to your husband and partner, and you are a father of a perpetrator of a violent attack. I mean, how in the world do you even deal in those weeks and months that follow? Well, 
my mom came and stayed for a month and helped. So that was great because I, I just couldn't do things and neither could Tom. Our friends and family were just miraculous. The food, the kindness. Our neighbors literally made a video. Everybody showed up at one of their houses and they made a video for us. And April, who lives across the street, came over and sat in the bed. Tom was still in the hospital at that time and showed this to me. And I was just crying and crying. I, I just couldn't believe people would do this for us. It, it was just the kindest thing I'd ever seen. Tom says, he goes, he goes, is that what, like a you're actually alive, but at your funeral? <laughs> it sounds like it. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so. You're wrapped in love. We were, we were wrapped in love. We got a really good therapist and she was close. She literally would come and sit in the backyard and help us until we got to where we could go to her office. And it was a lot because it's our son. And now he's in prison, which is horrible. And he belongs there. And you were almost murdered by him. It is the strangest feeling. So confusing. It's very confusing. He calls all the time, and I've talked to him twice, but it's too difficult for me. It's very, very difficult for me. So Tom does talk to him. I do read the letters that he sends. Has there been any... Acknowledgement, apology. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he has apologized profusely, not only for what he did, but for making our house dirty, for punching holes in the walls in his bathroom, for things he's done over the years. If you're anything like me, you're probably wondering why. Why would Matthew do this to his parents? The two people who walked beside him through hell so he could have a chance at a normal life. Ken and Tom both told me they don't intend to ask Matthew why he did it, because they wouldn't be able to trust the answer. Ken thinks he was afraid to go back to school and face adult life, and Tom thinks he was questioning whether he could live up to their expectations. What was it like for you the first time you saw him in court? Oh my God, it was so difficult. You know, here's our son. He looked really skinny. He was shackled, you know, with his hands and handcuffs. And that was shocking. I would imagine the anticipation of that, too. It had to be an emotional build knowing you were going to see him. Yeah, it really was. It was a, a big emotional build. And my son, Tyler, felt like he kept turning around and just evil eyeing Tyler. That was his feeling. Yeah. And we actually had interpreters there to interpret to Nikki and Tyler so they could understand what was going on. During the sentencing hearing, we got up on the stand, which our, the prosecutor asked us to do that. I, I was crying. I had a hard time. I had a hard time getting through it. I, I love him, but there's a part of me that, there's some hate wrapped up in that yeah. because of what happened. I get that. You know, it's like, wow, I can't believe he's going to be sent away. But full well knowing that he needs to pay for what he did. Hopefully he'll get some help in there. You know, so when he does come out, he'll know the right medications to take and so forth. And then you just hope that he does take the medication. Do you have fears about his release? Yeah. Yeah. Some, and I, you know, living here in LA, we have such a bad homeless population and a lot of that is mental illness. Yeah. Almost every time I go in under an underpass and I see all those tents, I think, is that where he's going to end up? Is that his life? I, I will never be around him alone again. There's no way I would. I, I can't. You know, we have 10 more years to go. Who knows what we'll do? Maybe we'll move. Maybe we won't. Maybe we put a big fence around our house, which I don't want to do. Yeah. You're a landscape designer. This is your business, your livelihood. And the impact on your arm, can you explain that, sort of the long-term? Well, my hand is numb 
all the time. It works after the surgery to my hand, which is kind of miraculous what they're able to do. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm disformed, you know, because I lost my bicep. People stare, especially, you know, during the summer when I'm in a t-shirt cause it's hot and I'm working outside, but you know, it took quite some time, you know, I couldn't do much of anything with it. I was thinking about, and this is something we've talked on the podcast, there's emotional wounds and scars, you know, that we can't see. And then there's physical. And I would imagine in your case, does it become a reminder? Yes. Yeah. Every day, because I feel it in my in my arm all the time, you know, being that my hand is numb. I, if I try to get something out of my pocket with my right hand, I, I can't feel if there's money in there. I can't feel the money because of that. The, the doctor that was doing a um, nerve conduction test where they literally stab you with these prongs and electrocute you for 45 minutes. Sounds lovely. It was just pleasant, (laughs) but he, He's doing this test and the doctor said, oh my, oh gosh, oh boy, all right, oh man. And I finally had to say, would you please stop that? Yeah. That is not helping how I'm feeling about this. I already know that the nerves are not working well. I can feel it. They had to do it anyway so the doctor knows what is working, what is not working, and fix whatever they can. How is it? changed your relationship with Tom? That's a very good question. There's, I think, good and bad. I don't know if I would say bad. It's good because our house is finally calm. Yeah. That, that is a silver lining, you know, without a doubt. Um, the expenditure of money is gone with college and so forth. You know, you, you have to heal and it just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen overnight. I think things come up and we try to go through it. Yeah. I imagine you're healing from the same experience, but you're two individual people on your own unique path to healing. Yeah. And we are very different, which is a part of why it it works really well for us in a relationship. And um, as any relationship, it has its ups and downs. That's the nature of the beast. But, you know, we have, you know, saw therapists for about a year and a half. You know, we've seen couples therapy just for a few seconds, so to speak. (laughs) Um, And just trying to figure out where we are, who are we now? You know, we, we now don't have a son, but we have a son, but we know we'll never really be around him alone again. It's, it's very bizarre, especially after 21 years of of living with a very difficult human being. As we've talked about in this episode, getting an accurate diagnosis for kids with mental illness is difficult because doctors will not diagnose bipolar or schizophrenia in pediatrics. But today, Matthew does have a diagnosis, autism spectrum, schizoid disorder, and bipolar disorder. What in your journey of healing has been the most helpful? What works and what doesn't? You know, I think a a lot of it is just my disposition as a whole, how I am, that I am able to just let things go. I'm not exactly sure how I do that. I have friends and they'll be talking about a family member dying and I'll say, you know, that's sad, but we all got to go. And like, you're always so laissez-faire about death. I'm like, I faced it head on. Multiple times. Multiple times where I literally was dying. You change how you feel about life and you live it to the fullest, the best you can in those moments when life is good and doesn't mean I don't get depressed, especially when I'm slow with work and I watch too much TV. And Tom gets angry with me. (laughs) (laughs) 
You've talked about the moment all those years ago with your diagnosis in 1985, it clicking when she said, you are not this illness, and you decided that you wouldn't be defined by a diagnosis. And it's something that came up in my interview with Tom. You know, you guys stayed in the house where this attack yeah. happened. I've seen your home. It's beautiful. You, you just remodeled it. It's has wonderful energy and it's a beautiful space. But I experience it as even that is an act of saying, you know, we won't let this define that we love this home, we love this neighborhood. But did that same tool or advice, you know, how much do you identify with this? It, it um, I'm so glad we stayed in the house because it is, it is a great house, an old 1940s ranch house. And the garden I created, I think is quite lovely. And we weren't going to let that experience push us out of our house. We just weren't. Neither one of us have had any PTSD. I, I, I was going to ask about that. I can't even tell you why we haven't. Maybe we do, and it's just in other ways. It manifests itself in other ways, possibly. But even going back to his bedroom where it happened, I have no problem whatsoever going back there. My Peloton bike is back there. <laughs> Got to get on the Peloton. Right. <laughs> How are you different than you were before the stabbing? That's a very good question. Wow. How do I answer that? Are there pieces of you that have changed? Yes, I think so. For some reason, I've become quieter. Um, I used to be quite outgoing. I've become quieter, a little more introspective. I feel damaged because I am, both mentally and physically. I know that I will carry on the best way I can and lead my life happily the best way I'm able to, because what's the option? I don't want to live miserably. Yeah. Neither does Tom. It's just not a part of who, who we are. The therapist asked me, she said, do you regret adopting him? I said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That was a very well thought out decision. And that was our decision. And what happened, happened. Some people get that are wanting to adopt. They're like, oh, that's why I'm so afraid of adopting. I'm like, this happens so seldom, you know, so please don't. It also don't. happens with biological. Of course it yeah. does. Of course it does. We actually met a woman that her son had stabbed her and he was in prison and she lived really close to where we were kind of amazing. And so we got to know her and her daughter. Um, it was nice talking and chatting about the experience. You know, she actually went in and got his sentence reduced. I was shocked that she did that, but that was her decision. You know, we all handle it differently. When Tom talked about you, he was, I would say, really in awe, very complimentary of your resilience. I think it's clear in this interview and your willingness, and thank you for that, to be so open. Sure that again and again and again, you have shown this quality. Life has sort of forced you to make that choice or not, right? But yeah. I'm curious, how would you define resilience? I think making a conscious decision of how you want to live your life and doing everything to get to that place. And I more mean that not in a, monetary way or anything of this nature. It's about, I have the power to change the way I look at things. I can't change that person, but I can change the way I view it. That was what I learned through going through everything that I went through. I guess you could say I'm lucky that I was able to realize that. The hope of this podcast is really understanding hope on the other side of pain and suffering and 
what it means to be human and to suffer and endure. And the intention with that is everybody is suffering in some way, right? And there are lessons to be learned and people who've been survived extraordinary things, right? Perhaps you have more wisdom than I do as a result of what you've been through. So I'm curious what your hope would be that people listening take away from your story. I would say that you have within you the ability to change the way you look at what happened if you choose and probably get someone to help look at your experience, whatever that is, in a different light. And that you can say, okay, this happened to me, but I'm not it. I'm not going to let that define my life. I don't exactly know how I got to that place, but I was able to do that. And just, you know, through the meditation, through the spirituality and realizing um, that I really have the power and so does everybody within themselves to look at their situation differently and hopefully move past it so you don't get so wrapped up in your dis-ease. Yeah. I think that's a really powerful lesson and you know one that has been echoed from really wise people and survivors on this podcast. Well, Ken, thank you again for your trust in me to play a part in sharing your story. And it has just been a pleasure to get to know you and Tom as people and individuals, but as a couple as well. And I hope we get to stay in touch. (laughs) Me too. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our composer and sound designer is John LaSala, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. If you enjoyed this episode, would you take a moment and let the world know? Writing a review of the show on your favorite platform goes a long way in helping others discover the show. Also, don't forget to join our All the Wiser Facebook group. You can share your thoughts on this episode and more with others in our community. Until next time, take care of yourself and others. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.